feel we understand perhaps here, and the church has known for many, many years, and yet some of our young people may not have ever heard the basic doctrine and all the scriptures covered, and some of us may have let some of them slip in our minds a little bit about how do we prove the things we believe. And not only that, there are a lot of scriptures, many, many of which I will not have time to get to today, which corroborate and back up and flesh out what we have and do believe. I'll get to a few of those and add some thoughts perhaps that we've not considered before very much, or perhaps not even thought of. But we need to know what death is, what happens when we die. Um, Out in the world, there are many different views. It does seem that human beings, irrespective of religion, have some kind of an idea or a thought or a feeling or a belief in some type of afterlife. It just seems normal and natural to a human being to have that kind of a perception. What what he bases it upon is neither here nor there from that standpoint, but it seems to be innate within us to have some kind of feelings about that, and yet they vary a great deal. People have many, many different ideas about what happens when we die. Is there an afterlife? What type of afterlife is it? Where do we go? What do we know? How does it end up? Now, most Protestant Catholic religion, in somewhat of a variation, believe that when we die, the body dies, but the soul lives and is still conscious. Most will either say you go to heaven when you die, to God's throne, or you go to hell, uh, whichever. Then you have Eastern religions and all kinds of religions scattered around the earth who have a view of the afterlife. But almost without fail, they believe in this immortality of the soul, which I just discussed with Christians and I were not, well, I know that's the wrong word, Catholics and Protestants. They have that perception that you don't really die, but that you are immortal. Your body can, but you don't. So you're wafting away in heaven or burning in hell forever. Reincarnation is a part of this. Uh, it is believed by many religions, some Protestant, many Eastern religions, that you There again, the immortality of the soul is at the basis of it. Uh, You don't really die, your body does, but then you go inhabit someone else, maybe in future generations, if not immediately. Some people feel that they have had several lives before, and they used to be uh, Genghis Khan or uh, Moses or even Christ himself. People think they've been reincarnated several different times, maybe. And some of them, it seems, have memories of past lives. Now, how is that possible? Now, I'm going to touch briefly on this. I don't have time to go into everything Satan is, everything he's done, and what shall be in his future. But let's suffice it to summarize it in that Satan was a created being at one time before he became Satan, was a holy, righteous angel of God, but vanity entered, and he decided he wanted to rise above God and be the ruler of the universe. 
Well, there was a great war, and he was cast down. Then God created human beings, which we understand, and I don't have time again to prove it all, that our fate, if we are obedient and serve God in the way that he wishes, our future, maybe fate is not the right word, but our future would be to become God. The very thing that Satan wanted to be. Now, that doesn't mean we would be over the Father and the Son, but we would be in the family of God and to be on the God level. We cannot marry Christ unless we are on his level. Kind begets kind, kind marries kind. And Satan hates and resents what God has in store for us. So he wishes to kill us all. Now, the Bible is replete with many examples of demons uh, inhabiting and influencing the minds of human beings. We could go to several scriptures showing how Christ cast demons out, how some of the apostles cast demons out of people. And today, that still occurs. People are judged insane or paranoid or many, many different faces and names that it comes, having split personalities and all kinds of psychological names we have for it, but it's demonism is what it comes down to. When there are multiple personalities, and I've talked to, let's put this in quotes, people who have had totally different personalities from one moment to the next. I remember one man, I'd lay hands on him, and he could speak to me as a normal human being, take my hands off, and he spoke gibberish and weird, wild things. And I put my hands on him several times because it was the only way I could talk to him. Otherwise, the demon took over. <clears throat> so there are, is demon possession yet today, and reincarnation is simply that a demon who possessed people in Christ's time and the Middle Ages, whenever, that same demon can come and inhabit other people today. And that demon in the mind of a human being can remember all the way back. So when the demon is in charge, that person can remember events that may have happened in someone's life that the demon used to inhabit. It's no great mystery when you understand the scriptures about it. But in any case, Satan does not want us to live. He wants us to die and not to inherit eternal life. So his manifest destiny is to destroy, try to destroy mankind from off the face of the earth. We're going to get into scriptures now, which indicate what man is and what happens to man, because all of these religions are based upon the immortality of the soul, reincarnation, or going to heaven and hell. And they are so very contradictory. Why is it that in the churches of this land, the preachers will get up and tell you you're all going to go to hell for sinning? And the second someone dies, they preach that sinner to heaven. So everybody's going to hell, but they never preach anybody to hell. Now why not? If that's where they keep telling them they're going, why don't they go ahead and preach them there? <coughs> Wouldn't be too popular. 
That was confusing to me as a child. I'll talk about my grandfathers here, and I won't say which is which. But in the one case, everybody in town thought he was a sinner. He didn't go to church. He didn't show up at Christmas. Uh, he worked on Sunday. He, I don't know what sins by the Bible he necessarily had, but to the town, it was a small town, he was a sinner. Because they went to church, and therefore they were okay, I guess. I don't know of any immoralities or any problems that he had. Uh, he didn't drink other than had a call, which had alcohol, but nobody knew that. Didn't drink, didn't chase women, didn't smoke, cussed a lot, but he was a sinner. So when he died, I'm sitting there in the pew as a child, and they preached him right to heaven. Now that was strange to me. How did he get to heaven when everybody thought he was a sinner? Then my other grandfather went to church every Sunday, and he was a businessman in town, highly respected, on all, I mean, from every uh, intent and look, or out, outwardly at least, he appeared to be a very fine Christian, upstanding man, deacon at the church or elder, whatever he happened to be, I don't remember. So everybody thought he was a fine man. Now behind the scenes, uh, he did all manner of things that I don't think the other one was doing. We won't go into that. And they preached him to heaven too. But a lot of people in the community knew the things he was doing on Monday or Monday through Saturday that he didn't do on Sunday. So that was kind of a strange mix. What's the truth? What really happens? And I think as we examine the truth, we're going to find that these beliefs, and maybe I should have gone over those because some of you kids grew up in the church or growing up in the church, and you may not even know what the Protestants and Catholics and Shintoists and Buddhists do believe. So I think a brief review of that was in order. Uh, I know for older people, it, maybe we're just talking about the same old things. But let's look at Scripture. And if we can define in Scripture what God says, not what religions say, because that really doesn't matter, does it? What men say means nothing. Now, God created us. God holds our future in his hands. So what he says is what's important. Let's examine that. Let me quit blathering about the world and get on to what God says. As in all cases of something fundamental, we need to go back to the book of Genesis. And here I want chapter 2, verse 7. And the eternal God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, prior to this, he had created all kinds of animals and fish and various things that there are. And they, too, have breath, do they not? And when their breath stops, they die. And there is nothing in Scripture <coughs> which indicates that they have any afterlife, whatever. They live as animals or birds until they die. And that's the end of them. There are a lot of people that want to send their little doggy or kitty to doggy or kitty heaven, but there is no such thing. 
But man is different, is he not? We have an intelligence that is higher than the animals. We can think, we can reason, we can use logic, we can plan. Animals react through instinct. So God makes it a point here that he breathed into man the breath of life. And man became a living soul. God did not take something that existed, an immortal soul, if you will, and then make it into a man. Man became a living soul. An aphesh. He had life. Now, is that something at creation that sounds immortal? The body was formed. The mind was formed, which has more to it than animals. Breath was breathed into it, and man became a living soul. So a soul is alive. A human being is a soul. Now, does he have a soul apart from his body? And if he dies, is that soul then still conscious and looking down from heaven? Now, how ludicrous is it, taken to an extreme, that when our relatives die, they fly off to heaven and then they look down upon us? Is that what you want? Isn't it bad enough to have God and Christ seeing everything you do without having your relatives up there watching everything you do? That might make you a little uncomfortable considering some of the things you do. There was a man on one of the talk shows, I don't know which, who had a real problem. His mother had died. And she went to heaven, they said. And he perceived his mother up in heaven watching everything he did. Now it came to the point in his life he could not have an intimate relationship with his wife because mommy was looking. It bothered him so much that his life became a nervous, paranoid shambles. Now most people don't take it to that extreme, but that's really what they're saying, is mommy and daddy are watching everything I do. It's bad enough for you teenagers to think your parents know what you're doing. Here. You couldn't hide anything if they're up there looking down. I don't think I like that doctrine. That's scary. Must be something wrong with it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to have to hurry through these because I have a lot of ground I want to cover today. A lot of scriptures to corroborate and back up where we're going with this. Uh... Verse 45, well, let's go to 44. It is sown a natural body, speaking of a human being. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. So in this chapter, he's talking about what we are before the resurrection and what we are after the resurrection. And he's saying that we are of the earth, earthy, earthbound as human beings, and then a change comes. And he says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. So in the New Testament it says, Adam was a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. 
So he's putting Adam in the past as if Adam is dead. But Christ, who was here and then died, has been made a quickening spirit in contrast to Adam, who has not been. And we'll see some scriptures to back that up a little later. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the eternal from heaven. And it goes on down to how we have had the image of the earthly, but we shall have the image of the heavenly. Now that's not a fait accompli, is it? It's not something that's already done. He's talking about Christians in the past. He's talking about from Adam on. And he says, this is something that shall be. They are not yet then eternal or immortal or changed. It's something for the future as laid out here. Now that is the implication. It doesn't say that in so many words if we need that. But let's go on and we shall see that. Job 32.8 says that there is a spirit in man. We are different. It says when we die, our body dies, and the spirit goes back to God who gave it. I looked that up, and I didn't write it down now. I forgot exactly where that's written. It is. So there is something that returns to God, but is it conscious is a question. And the Bible itself will answer that question. Now, Herbert Armstrong put it in, I think, a very good way in that there is a spirit, a difference, a soul within and is part of man that is different from the animals, in that our mind is higher than that of the animals. <clears throat> and that what gives, is what gives us the power to have logic, to think, to reason, and so on. But when we die, that goes back to God as what? As a recording of what we were, what we knew, what we had experienced. It's like a DVD a tape, a record of what was, but it's inert. The body is dead, and with that, the consciousness goes with it. And not until the resurrection will that be combined with a new body and the, the mind upgraded and become cognitive, become alive, become able to think again. So it's something that in that sense lies dormant, like a VHS tape or a DVD lies dormant on your shelf until you plug it in and turn on the power. And so our minds and a recording of what we've been, God does not lose. But we are not conscious during that time, as I will show you in some scriptures, from the time we die until a time later on. So memory of us is not lost. It's just inert. It can't play until again given power. Now let's go on and show some of that. We're not afraid of those. Uh, we'll get to it here. Can the soul die? Let's go to Psalm 7. Psalm 7, here verse 2. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. Well, if it's an immortal soul and it can't be touched, how is it going to be torn like a lion? What does a lion do when it tears flesh? It kills it, destroys it. Verse 5, 
let the enemy per persecute my soul and take it, kill it. If there be iniquity, oh, let's see, wait a minute. Yes, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay my honor in the dust. So man became a living soul and man does die. So the soul loses consciousness with that. Now does the body disappear? It goes back to dust, but it's still here, isn't it? And there will come a time when it is resurrected and changed from dust to immortality or eternity. In the meantime, the body is gone. But the soul is also dead or inert with it. It also, in that sense, can be destroyed, except it will go to God as a memory, as something that can be restored. The consciousness is gone in the meantime. Psalm 33. Here are 1 verse 19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for them that fear you, which you have wrought for them that trust in you before the sons... No, that's not what I want. I'm in 31, no wonder. 33, 19, I want it. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Oh, the soul can be delivered from death. But on the other hand, it might not be delivered from death. In other words, it's saying there, it can go, can die, lose consciousness. And that's what death is, is a loss of consciousness. Uh, let's go to Hebrews 9 and verse 27. Hebrews 9 And 27. And as it is appointed to men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So, we die as human beings. It is appointed to us. That is our fate. Unless we live until Christ returns and are simply changed, that's the only exception, we all will die. The very fact that we breathe breath of life and God has set the cycle in order, it also ends in death for every human being. So it's not something strange, but it happens. Job 14. What did Job, where did Job think he went when he died? Job 14, verse 14. If a man die, shall he live again? Will he again be conscious? Will there be a time when he will come alive. All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. You shall call and I will answer. You will have a desire to the work of your hands. So God isn't going to forget Job. Job's been dead now for thousands of years. God hasn't forgot him, forgotten him. He will call when? We'll see that later. And Job will answer. He'll be resurrected. Let's follow this up in Romans 3. Romans 3. And here I want verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Now, we do not have the glory of God, and we are not immortal. We have all sinned and come short of God's glory, which is sinless. Now, let's pair that with Romans 6:23 and see what happens to those who sin. Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Emmanuel our Lord. Eternal life can be given as a gift, but if we sin, then the wages of that sin is death unless God, in his mercy and forgiveness, chooses to give us the gift of eternal life. So once we die, there is a possibility of a future life, is there not, based on that scripture. There is a possibility of living again and having life eternal. But let's add to that Ezekiel 18.4. Ezekiel 18.4. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. So God says, from Adam on, everybody that's lived, every soul that is breathed on this earth, is God's. And he says then, the soul that sins, it shall die. Does that sound like it's immortal? Where do people get this immortality of the soul idea anyway? Is it in the Bible? We'll see in a minute. Let's add to this just a little bit more, though. Let's go to James 5, verse 20. James 5, verse 20. If those seemed a little unclear in the Psalms, maybe this will help clear it up. Let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So here it's saying in the New Testament, if you don't like the old, that the soul that sins will die. To save a soul from death. That means if you don't save it, it will die. So it must not be immortal then, huh? Let's go to Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5. This is a very pivotal scripture, but all scripture is given by God, and this is an important one as well. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5. For the living know that they shall die. We understand and grasp that. But the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. There is no reward as they are lying dead. They may have a reward later. But the, the real point I want to make here is that the, the dead know not anything. So we're all appointed to die. If we've sinned, we die, and all have since Adam. But when we die, we know not anything. We're not in heaven or in hell or in limbo or wherever with consciousness. We know nothing. Now those are the very, very plain words of Scripture dead, inert, not knowing anything. So the spirit which goes back to God in heaven then knows nothing. 
It is inert. It is simply a recording of what you were and shall be when resurrected. Now, if you were evil, when you are resurrected, you have a second death to look to. Revelation 20. This is the second death, it says, when death and hell, the grave, give up those that are there. And if they have not been saved from death through Christ and everything in the Bible, they will die again. But those who are in Christ, dead, will live again eternally. Very clear to see. But in the meantime, they know nothing. Let's add one more to that in Matthew, something Christ himself said. Matthew 10, I mean 28. No, 10, 28 is what I want. Fear not them which kill the body, but are able to kill the soul. Now we've seen the soul that sins that shall die. Man can't kill the soul. So somewhere in there, it must be that when they kill the body, which they can easily do, there is something there that they can't kill. And that would be that recording, that knowledge of what you were, and it is preserved. Now, it does say, Rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna fire. So it is not an immortal soul. Immortal means undying cannot die. And if God can kill it, then it wasn't immortal, was it? And he says he can. So man can't, he can kill your body, but he can't destroy your future. That which can be combined with spirit to make you come conscious again. In the meantime, you don't know anything. Now, let's go on uh, about the immortal soul a bit, because this is at the very crux of nearly all religion, is that there is an immortal soul. Romans 2, verse 7. I wrote that down wrong. There are five places that immortal or immortality are used in the Bible. Oh, yeah, that is right. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Well, he's talking about Christians who seek immortality. We don't have it. We seek it. It's a future thing. It's not something already possessed, so that when you die, you remain alive and remain conscious. It's something that is for the future and can be had, obviously, but something that is not yet had. I want to see, because people say, well, you have an immortal soul. Where do they find that? It's not in the Bible. Immortal soul is not mentioned one time in the Bible. And we're going to examine everywhere immortality or immortal is mentioned, just so we know. That was the first one. Now 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53. 
For this corruptible must put on, doesn't have, must put on incorruption, a future event. And this mortal must put on immortality. So we are mortal, that means we can die, and we must put on, at some point, immortality. Future event. Now let's go to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. And here we want verse 10. This is talking about Christ, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Emmanuel of Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, there is a potentiality of immortality, and he has made it light or knowledgeable through the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. So as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, it's something that can be obtained to, and that Christ preached and said that this can be had in the future. But it doesn't say anything about the present. Now let's nail this down. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. No, 6. Oh, 1 Timothy 6, 16 first, and then one more. Here he's speaking of, let's read verse 15. Which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach to. So God only is immortal. Man does not have any immortality whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. So God only has immortality. We do not possess it in and of ourselves, and when we die then, we die and we know nothing. Now, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 17. This is the only place in the Bible that the word immortal appears. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. There is no scripture in which immortality is mentioned except as a future potentiality, and the only one who has it is God. And that's it. You won't find immortal soul. Get your best concordance. It's not there. Now, if we now don't have an immortal soul, what goes to heaven? Body is in the ground. If it's not immortal, then it's not alive. Does it go to heaven? Let's answer that specifically. John 3. Verse 13, and no man, that's pretty inclusive, isn't it? No man, not any, not Moses, not Abraham, not Paul, not James, not John, not Peter. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he which came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. 
Nobody has gone up there but him. If your mother in heaven watching you, if she's dead, no. She might be watching if you're still alive, but not if she's dead. She hasn't gone there. No one's gone there except he who came down. Acts 2. Verse 34. Now, what's David going to be in the kingdom of God? There's a scripture that says he will be king of all Israel in the kingdom of God. I didn't look it up. The point here is that he's not gone to heaven. Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens. His body isn't here and his soul in heaven. He kept saying all through the Psalms, and I didn't go to all of them, but dozens of places about how his soul was about to go to hell or he could be killed or die or be torn like lions, and on and on and on it went. David is not ascended, but he says himself, the Eternal said to my Lord, sit you on my right hand until I make your foes your footstool. So no man in John and not even David in Acts. Acts 2.27 Because you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. So this is speaking of Christ who died, and he was in the grave, which is what hell means, unless it's speaking of Gehenna, the, the lake of fire. So he was in the grave, in hell. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. So he didn't rot in those three days there. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. And if you read on down then in verse 34, and he didn't go to heaven. And neither did your uncle or either one of my grandparents or anybody that's ever lived go to heaven. They uh, think they do. But the scripture says, no one ever has. Now let's talk about the immortal soul a little bit. Let's go to Romans. Oh no, let's see, I've already done that one. They also believe, not only that you have an immortal soul, the Protestants and various religions, but also that once you're saved, you're always saved. And saved to them means except just the name of Jesus, and you're saved, and you can't lose salvation. Doesn't matter what happens after that, you've already been saved. Is that biblical? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. And pick up the story here. Paul is speaking here in verse 24 about running a race, running for the prize, trying to win. Verse 25, And every man that strives for the mastery in racing is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So he says we are striving for and seeking eternal life. Now he's indicating here a lot of effort, isn't he? What happens when you run? Well, if I tried it, I'd probably just die. But when we run, 
It's work. It's hard. It makes you pant. If you run much, you feel the pain. You lose, you get short of breath, your body gets tired. It's work to run and keep running. It's not easy. People train and train to be able to run and run well. So it's not easy, is it? And he's comparing this life to a race. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Well, he had to fight his body. He had to fight his natural tendencies. Does that sound like once saved, always saved? Hey, if we're saved, relax. You can't lose out. Your reward is secure. You're going to heaven, man. Why fight it? Why work at it? Why overcome? That's hard. Ever notice that? It's not easy. Relax. We'll speak smooth and easy things here, shall we? Is that what Paul's saying? I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway, cast into the lake of fire. Now, Paul had accepted Jesus, if you will. He had been converted. He had been baptized. He had been, in that sense, as the world would say, saved. He had accepted the Lord. He's talking about being a castaway. If you're once saved, always saved, as they preach, why did he say that? Well, you're not once saved, always saved. Let's drill that in a little bit. Second Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, uh, if I could read my own writing, it would help. I think verse 20. He's talking, well, let's, let's go to verse uh, 19 first. While they promised them liberty, liberty from the law is what the religions promise. Not liberty from a bad conscience, not liberty from the penalty of sin, but liberty from the law. That's a different subject. They themselves are the servants of corruption. So they preach that you're free from the law, but they are themselves corrupt. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage, the bondage of sin, the penalty of sin, which is death. For if, or if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Emmanuel the Christ, they've escaped it. They've been, as we might say, baptized or in the world's nomenclature, saved. If after they've done that, they're again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. So if you are saved, as they say, you come out of the world, and then you go back to those things that you did in the world, your judgment is going to be worse than if you had never come out in the first place because you were enlightened and then went back. That's even worse. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy, what? 
commandments delivered to them. He's saying you better keep the commandments. Even if saved, you have to keep the commandments. Now, eternal life is a gift because sin has to be forgiven and mercy extended. You cannot earn salvation. It's a gift. But he will not give that gift to a rebellious, spoiled, disobedient person. Now, a reward is based on works. We'll see that in a moment. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So, if we accept the Lord, or are saved, as they would term it, and we go back to the ways of the world and forget the commandments of God, and they really weren't saved unless they were keeping the commandments anyway, were they? What were they saved from? Sin is breaking the law. The wages of sin or breaking the law is death. If we don't keep the law, we weren't be being saved anyway. And that is the correct terminology, being saved from death. Because there is always the possibility that after entering that process of being saved from sin and the death that comes with it, we go back to sin and lose out, like a sow returning to the wallow. And it had been better never to have even known than to go back that way. So, we're not once saved, always saved. Paul himself could be a castaway. Hebrews 12. Let's see one more. There are plenty, but just one more on this. Back in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Now here he's talking about laying aside every sin that so easily besets us. And he's talking to Christians here. Sin is the breaking of the law. This is the love of God that you keep the commandments, 1 John 5, 3. And he says we have to strive that we have not yet resisted unto blood, verse 4. Boy, I thought salvation came easy. If you listen to the Protestants, it does. Why do they keep telling them to quit sinning or they're going to hell? You see how inconsistent it is? But then he uses Esau as an example down in verse 16 and on down. And he talks about how Esau was okay, and then he got into a nasty, angry, vengeful attitude. And even though he tried to repent, he couldn't get over it. And he has got some things to answer to in the future. So he said, don't be like Esau. You might be in a good state. You might be, as you would say, saved. But you can lose that. And he did lose it. And he says, you've come to the mount that may be not... You're not coming to the mount that could be touched to the burn with fire in verse 18, but you're coming before Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and on an innumerable company of angels, verse 23, to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Christ himself. Says you better remember where you are, lest you do like Esau did, and you lose out. That's scary. It is a possibility then. Now, 
What about the reward of the saved? What is the reward for obedience, and when does it come? Let's, let's examine a very, well, I have plenty of time, but I'm almost down a few more scriptures. Let's look at this one for a moment. John 6, verse 40. Now, so far, we've mostly dealt with what is not. There are a few references to eternal life and so on, even in the ones that we're saying we don't yet have it. But let's get more specific here about uh, the future and what can be. John 6, verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. So if we do seek Christ and everything that that entails, we don't have time for all that. It isn't just believing that he is. It is believing him and doing what he says. Not hearers only, but doers of the word shall be saved. And there's plenty on that. But just to indicate here that there is a possibility of everlasting life, and as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, a future possibility of immortality, which is what eternal life is all about. Well, when does that come? Does it come when you die? Read on. And I will raise him up at the last day, the last day of this age, the day Christ returns and the resurrection occurs. That's when everlasting life, immortality, is given even as explained in great detail in 1 Corinthians 15. All right, let's go to Romans 6. We've already been to verse 23. Let's go to verse 22 in the light of this, Romans 6, verse 22. But now being made free from sin, that is through forgiveness in the blood of Christ, and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto or toward holiness, and the end, the fruit thereof, or the process ends in everlasting life. So we repent, we have our sins forgiven, and then we produce fruit toward everlasting eternal life. And it is a gift from God, as again as it says in verse 23. If you keep sinning, you'll die. If you keep breaking the law, you will die. The law is not done away. The penalty can be done away in the blood of Christ, but not the law. 1 Thessalonians 4, another insight into when and how. We generally read this at times of death. It's very comforting and helpful. But when do we have this gift that we've been talking about. Verse 16, For the Eternal Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So he's talking about the return of Christ at the last trump, and a resurrection. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Eternal in the air, and so shall we ever be with the eternal. Now he's coming down, and we're resurrected and rise to meet him, but he's not up in the Father's throne in heaven. Is that the reward of the saved? Now I do believe, based on some things about the Day of Atonement and so on, 
that we will go up to the Father's throne for a year's honeymoon. I covered that recently. But that isn't where we'll stay. We'll come back with him when he's riding a white horse, his vesture dipped in blood to finish subjugating the earth, because he goes back, and we go with him, and then when he comes back, we come back with him. We'll ever be with him wherever he is. But we'll see a little later, this is where he will be. That's where our reward is. And that is, again, in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know that I read, need to read all of that. We've already been there and seen a couple of verses, but let's, let's look at a little bit of it. Uh, those again, I show you a mystery, verse 51. We shall not all sleep. Whenever, all of us won't die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We won't have been living in heaven. Our body will be dead. Who we were, what we were, will be recorded in heaven, and our judgment will be either the lake of fire at the time of the second resurrection, Revelation 20:14 says so, or we will rise to life eternal at the first resurrection. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So there is a time when immortality does come, but we are not an immortal soul. Man became a living nephesh, and he dies, as David and others have said, and as Christ himself said, the soul that sins, it shall die. And God is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna fire. So it is not by any means eternal. Let's notice also Hebrews 11. This is a very pivotal one, which we do not often use. But it is substantial, because this is the chapter that talks about the faithful of the past. Paul is giving kind of a ring of honor, or an honor roll of some in the past. He didn't name them all. He said time would not allow him. But he's talking about Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Sarah, and even Rahab, and David, and Gideon, and, and many, many others who went through a great deal, you know, death, torture, uh, sawn asunder, stoned, it says in verse 37, wandered, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and it's going to happen again soon. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now they'll tell you in churches, they went to their reward. They died and they went to their reward. They went to heaven. Is that where they went? These received not the promise. Now how did Aunt Matilda go to heaven and receive the promise when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Gideon didn't? And David didn't? They had a good report. But they're not alive. They did know nothing. Now let's read on. God having provided some better thing for us, 
that they, speaking of the aforementioned, without us should not be made perfect. And you're not perfect until you're changed into incorruption and immortality. We are qualifying for the kingdom of God, but we are still yet unqualified. We still sin, and we pray continually for forgiveness. But all those people who will be in the kingdom of God, as it says here, are not there yet. And if those people aren't there, neither is Aunt Matilda. I'm sorry. Neither is your mother. Let's go to Revelation 11. Revelation 11. We're getting close to the end here now. There are many, many scriptures I could go to, but I, I picked some of the more poignant ones, the more defining ones. Revelation 11:18. Now, this is speaking of the end time. Uh, it's a chapter at the end of when the two witnesses preach and then are killed at the end of the tribulation. That is the last day, the day of the last trump. So he says in verse 18, And the nations were angry, and your wrath is come. This is definitely end time. That's what the book of Revelation is. And the time of the dead. So here's the time of the dead that their resurrection occurs at the last day. That they should be judged. Oh, their judgment hasn't come yet. But they're dead. And that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're going to be in the kingdom of God. They're not yet. They have not received the reward. The time to give the reward is when Christ returns at the resurrection. The reward of the saved has not been given yet. And to the saints. Oh, not just the prophets, but the saints as well. And them that fear your name, small and great. The reward for the small and great also has not been given. And should destroy them which destroy the earth. So when Christ returns is when the reward is given. How many times have I heard a Protestant say, well, he went on to his reward? He didn't get that out of here, did he? Where'd he get it? Didn't get it out of the Bible. Not in here. Too many scriptures tell us when the reward will come. Isaiah 62. Now, I know you believe this, but I think we need to look at these and really see the proof and understand what we understand and know why we believe what we believe. Isaiah 62, verse 11. Behold, the Eternal has proclaimed the end of the world, say you to the daughter of Zion. Behold, your salvation comes. Haven't received it yet. Your salvation is in the future. It is coming. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. So his reward is with him when he comes to be passed out, and his work then is ahead of him to set up the kingdom of God for a thousand years. Now we're going to rule in heaven? 
Is heaven the reward of the saved? He's going to be on the earth a thousand years. And Revelation 5.10 says we shall reign on the earth. So the reward and eternal life come at the first resurrection when Christ returns, as we've read, and the reward is to reign on the earth. So we see from Scripture when we receive eternal life and immortality and where we will then use that eternal life and immortality. The earth is the reward of the saved, not heaven. We will visit it for about a year, but then the Father and the Son and the New Jerusalem are coming down from heaven, and he's going to live right here and dwell on the earth in glory with us, the 144,000 if we qualify as the bride of Christ. Let's see two more scriptures then and we're done. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. And verse 27. <coughs> For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then... Not until then, not after then, but then. He shall reward every man according to his works. So eternal life is a gift given to those whom God forgives and decides are worthy of it. And it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. I skipped over that one. I wrote it up here. It's Luke 12. What verse was it? 32? I wrote it up here somewhere. I think it was verse 32, Luke 12. It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He wants to do that, but he does say, give it to us. We can't earn it, but we can earn a reward, and that reward is based upon works. So it's not grace only either, but works are involved. And if we don't have good works, he may not be willing to give us a gift either. Well, that's when it will happen. Now, let's see that one more time in Revelation 22. It says almost the same thing back here. This is at the time that the new heavens and new earth have come down in chapter 21 and 22, and the conditions that will be there then at the beginning of the millennium when the river of life comes out to heal the nations. They will not have, at that point, been healed. But that's coming. Now... There comes a point when it's almost done. Verse 10, he says, And he said to me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. It is drawing near. Of course, John thought it was in his lifetime, and it wasn't, but it still was near in terms of history. Uh, we're only 2,000 years since, the, or 1,000 years since then. No, 2,000, excuse me. And the 7,000 years is ahead. Anyway, he says, if you're unjust, there comes a point where it's too late. Just remain that way. If you're just, stay that way. But there's, come a, there's coming a cutoff point where it's too late to overcome, and there's no sense in trying to go the other direction either. Anyway, then in verse 12 he says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. 
You're not already in heaven when he comes. You haven't already been there for a few thousand years or 50 years or whenever you died. He's bringing his reward with him. And every man, uh, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. I don't care what you interpret or how you interpret what Paul wrote. Paul agreed with John and with Christ, and the commandments are not done away with. His reward is coming. And he says that if you have to have a right to the tree of life, you must keep the commandments. That is what gives you the right. So almost everything in Protestantism and Catholicism is diametrically opposed to Scripture. We are not immortal. We will die, and we will not know anything. And we will be dead and inert and unconscious until the resurrection. And then we'll be given eternal life, everlasting life, and immortality, and only one has it now, God himself and Christ. You have to be God to have an immortal soul. And ours will become immortal at the time of the resurrection when we are conferred immortality. It's just not in the Bible for now. It is a potential. It is an opportunity. It is a gift that comes from God to those who will obey him and serve him and be doers of the word. So we have one who just recently died among us. He's not in heaven, and thank God he's not in hell, except the hell defined as the grave, or will be soon. And there he will wait, just like Job, until he is resurrected to life, when Christ returns with his reward for those who are now being saved. So that is the scriptural truth of where the dead are and what their state is. They are not floating around in the air, inhabiting human beings and being uh, reincarnated. That is a false doctrine that is not biblical. Satan is not engaged in a war with God and losing, I mean, God is not losing, as the Protestants would have you say. We've got to go out and get them all saved, get them all baptized or sprinkled or whatever. Because God's losing the battle. Do they really think Satan is stronger than God and that God is losing? They simply don't understand the plan of God. And that there are several different opportunities for salvation. Now, the millennium the great white throne judgment. And Hebrew, I mean, uh, Romans 11:26 says, all Israel shall be saved. God has a plan, and he's going to work it, and I don't care how hard the Protestants work, they're not going to save the world from the devil. Christ only can do that. Now, we may be able to warn the world at some point, but we can't save the world. We can't get them saved. Only Christ and the Father in their own will, and their own time, can and will save the world. God is a success, resoundingly so. Satan is a failure, 
And he's going to be loosed for a little while at the end of the millennium, and then he's going to be rebound, because being loosed for a little while means that you will only be loosed for a little while and then rebound. God is going to win. That has always been the case. He is taking his time about it, and people think he's losing, therefore they have to go save the world. No. God knows how, and he will. Meantime, we live, hopefully we're converted, if God calls us, we live according to his will, his way, his commandments, and because we are with him instead of against him, in rebellion against his rules, then he will give us the gift of eternal life, and because of the good works that we do, he will give us a great reward in his kingdom. So we live and we die. And we wait in the grave, unconsciously, until the Spirit return and we are empowered and come back to life in a glorified state. That is what Scripture teaches. Man doesn't, but that's what God says. I'll go with what God says. Now, after the service here, if we could kind of clear this area over here for a little while... Uh, we have to set up for the memorial service, which is to follow. So maybe you can move over here or back to the back or something so we have opportunity to do that.